Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Oh, it's good to be with you all. It's good to be here on a Sunday morning, fellowshipping, worshiping together in the spirit. Let me uh, pray as we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, our first declaration is that you are a good father and that you have called us to be your children. We are seated uh, with Christ, uh, co-heirs. What an amazing thing to declare. And so as we come into your word this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be renewed and encouraged, but we are open to be corrected as your children. And if there is something in us that needs to be corrected or laid down or put before you, uh, Lord, we welcome that so that we can become more uh, the way we are created anew in Christ to be. So Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning to use the word of God to transform our hearts and our minds, to not let this be just another Sunday that we do, but to have this space be a, a place where we are intentionally meeting with you, to hear from you and then act on what we hear. And so we invite your work in our lives and we say all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I don't um, have a lot of fears in my life. I'm a generally, you know, fairly confident person. I'm, I'm not afraid of a lot. Um, that's actually a work God's done to me. Because when I was uh, engaged to Lori, I had a weird pain in my leg. And I was like, oh, that's cancer. And, uh, and I was like... I guess, you know what, I'm just going to tell my fiance, like, let's break it off. I'm, I'm probably going to die. Um, you know, so, so actually that's been a, a work of God in me to not be fearful. Um, and, you know, it turns out I was a window, cl like, cleaner. I climbed ladders all day. That's why my leg was sore. Uh, you know, I mean, there was reasons. But so I, I've really, God's done a lot of work in me in terms of fear and, and anxiety. But um, one, of the, one of the things I still fear, and probably my biggest fear, is losing my eyesight because I already have pretty bad eyesight. And listen, if you know Pastor Mike Potker, I can't even complain. I mean, that guy only had one eye, right? So like, he's, got, he's more fearful than I am, but I'm fearful because without glasses, without contacts, I can't see anything. And the reason that this has become a, a bigger fear for me or something that I'm worried about is that a few years ago when I was at the optometrist, just for a normal checkup, he said, ooh, let me, and you're like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. We're not even at the like lens part yet. He's just like looking with that like light thing. And he's like, I gotta, I gotta take a few more uh, moments here. And he's like, oh, this is not good. I don't know what's going on. And it turned out that I had holes in my retina. And what he explained to me is like, your eye is so elongated. It goes back so far. It puts so much tension on the retina that even a slight bump in the wrong spot can rip, put a hole in your retina. So that makes me a little bit fearful because there's nothing I can do about this. This is something my body does. My eye is too elongated. It puts pressure on that. And um, I don't know what that's going to look like as I get older as well, right? So what I had to do is I had to go in to get laser eye surgery. I wish it was to fix my vision, but it was just to spot weld the holes in my retina. That's exactly what they said. Oh, we're just welding the retina shut. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. Uh, one of it didn't hurt. The other one was near a cluster of nerves, and you could kind of feel it a little bit. So... I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose my sight. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be born blind. I think sight is just one of the most beautiful gifts that we have for, for the senses. You know, you asked that hypothetical question, like, what, what sense would you be willing to lose? And my eyesight is like my top priority. I want my sight. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus who healed a man who was born blind from birth. 
Now, I just want to explain a little bit about this miracle because Jesus does more than heal an eye in this encounter with a blind man. This isn't Jesus healing a corneal scar or removing a cataract or spot welding a retina back on. Um, This is the healing of an eye, yes, but the rebuilding of the optic nerve and the rewiring of the visual cortex in the brain. Let me explain this a little bit, how deep this miracle goes. Because vision primarily forms in infants between birth and 18 months. And so if you were to take a baby with fully functioning eyes and place an eye patch over one eye for the first year of life, that child would always be blind in that eye. Not because there's anything wrong with the eye, but because the brain would not have developed the neurons and the pathways required to see. The brain wouldn't have learned to see with that eye. The brain has to learn how to do this. And so at this point, medically speaking, there's no hope for vision to occur because the brain just didn't develop the necessary synapses for sight to occur. So you can do all you want with that eye. It doesn't matter. It's a brain thing now. So with a man who was born blind, Jesus is not only healing an eye, He's forming the neurons and the synapses between the visual cortex and the optical nerve, between the brain and the optical nerve. And so that's something that even with all our amazing technology, and I went to this laser eye center surgery place and they had all sorts of cool lasers that they would shoot into your eye. Even with all that, this is impossible for humans. You, you can't rewire a brain that has not been wired uh, for vision. So it's completely impossible for humans, but nothing is impossible for God. So let's get into the specifics of our text. And we're in John chapter 9. You can pick up with me in verse 1. As he went along, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I just want to pause for a moment, just ask, get this out of the way. The disciples asked this question, who sinned? And this question gives us an insight into some of the common assumptions of sickness and tragedy, not only in that day, but even some things that I hear today. It's assumed even today sometimes in in some churches, that good people get blessed and sinful people receive tragedy. That's an easy answer to suffering and you hear variations of it in churches today, but Jesus doesn't give us that easy out or that easy answer to suffering and tragedy. He simply says, no one sinned. This happened so God's power could be seen in him. And if you remember way back when I preached on a, on a parable, uh, you know, and Jesus is basically explaining why is the world so broken, so evil, so full of stuff, and basically Jesus says, an enemy did it. There's an enemy in the world. And so even in this, there's what we can dig out of this is that there is tragedy in this world and there is senseless tragedy in this world because our world is fallen. And there is an enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy But it's not just the enemy. It's not just a spiritual thing. The world is just physically broken. There's there's all sorts of brokenness and fallenness that has come into the world. In Genesis 3, we read that all of creation comes under the curse of the fall and sin and the whole world is broken. But then the hope of Scripture, if you read through the whole of Scripture, you come to Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 restores everything to how it was in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a return to the garden. It's a return to no suffering, no sin, no sickness, no death. The presence of God will be with his people uh, for all time, everywhere. But we're not in Revelation 21 yet. 
When Jesus returns for a second time, all will be put right. Revelation 21 comes in. But between Genesis 3, the fall, and Revelation 21, the full restoration, there is going to be tragedy, suffering, and brokenness. And who sinned to cause it? Well, I guess sin entered the world, and the world is broken. But here's the hope of the gospel. Where the kingdom of God advances in this world, there is restoration. Jesus, in what he is doing in his work, is he is removing the curse of Genesis 3 and bringing the restoration of Revelation 21 everywhere he goes. And then we, who follow Jesus, continue to advance the kingdom of God into a broken and fallen world by putting right what is wrong, both for the physical needs of people, like if people are hungry, we feed them. If they're sick, we take care of them. If they need somewhere to stay, we provide for them. But also spiritually, in that we proclaim the good news of Jesus, who said, you can go from darkness into light. You can go from death into life. And that's why Jesus said to us, anyone who believes in me, will do the same things I have done and even greater things because we are to continue bringing the kingdom of God into darkness. Just as Jesus brought the restoration of the kingdom, the Revelation 21 into the Genesis 3 world, we are now empowered and commissioned to go and do likewise. As Jesus would say in another place, as I have been sent into the world, so you are sent into the world. And so we bring partially the, the restoration of Revelation 21 to a fallen world. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're, it's not our job to bring in the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to do that with the Father. But we are a part of the kingdom work in this fallen world. And so Jesus says this man's blindness was an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. And F.F. F. Bruce explains it like this. He says, this doesn't mean that God deliberately caused a child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory would be displayed in removing the blindness. To think that would be a defamation on the character of God. And I agree. You can't say, oh, God made this man suffer for many, many, many years just so Jesus could have a moment of glory. That's pretty sick, actually. If you think that one through, you're like, that's, that's weird. That would be a weird thing to think about a God who is love. So he goes on, he says, what it does mean is that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to adulthood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others around him seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. So let me put it like this. God is in the business of restoration, of putting back things to the way they were always meant to be. So in this man's blindness, in this man's affliction, and it's not caused by what they think it's caused by, it's simply, hey, this is, a, this is a broken and fallen world, but in this affliction, there is opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. And so it leads me to think this, no matter what the situation is, no matter how tragic or heartbreaking, God is ready and willing to redeem those things which are broken. And there is opportunity in tragedy for God to work in ways we never expected. And I've walked with Christians through some pretty difficult tragedies, and I have seen God do miraculous things. The tragedy is still there. The death still comes. The suffering is still there. And yet they go, but I see God's faithfulness even in this. And you go, that sounds crazy, but that is the work of God. That's what he does. And so I want to say this, that God is not the author of evil or suffering. He didn't make this boy blind. However, he can enter into sorrow and heal us. He can enter into tragedy to bring comfort. He can redeem even the most tragic events of life because he is a God who heals, restores, and redeems. It's simply who he is. And so the point that Jesus makes here 
is that because the world has fallen and under the curse of sin, there will be senseless tragedies. It's part of living in a broken world. However, God can enter into those situations to display his goodness, his glory, and his power. And I've, I've done this enough to know that not everyone we pray for is healed. I've prayed for some people and I've seen miraculous healing and I've prayed for a lot of people and I've not seen that same healing. But what I have seen is the presence of Jesus meet them in that place. And this is actually, just for a moment, this is off my notes, but just a good Christian and missionary alliance theology of healing is this. We are bringing those who are afflicted with physical illness to the presence of Jesus. And we believe that the presence of Jesus will meet them there. It might be a physical healing. Or it might be strength to get through what's going on. It might be this empowerment of the, of the, of the spiritual to give them faith and courage and their faith will ignite others' faith even as they move through the suffering and the tragedy. We just believe that when we bring someone in for physical healing, we're inviting them to encounter Jesus and however Jesus wants to encounter them. And we understand that healing can happen. We pray for healing. I've seen it happen. But we also understand that there's an eternal life coming and it's an eternal life where we will be fully restored. We will never suffer sickness or sin or death again. But in the meantime, it's okay to ask God why. It's okay to ask God, why did this occur? Why did healing not occur? You know, ask those really difficult questions. Why did that two-year-old fall out of a window? Why did a young mother die in a car accident? We're allowed to ask why. We're, we're encouraged even to ask why. The why God question comes up here in Scripture, right? Here in our text today, the disciples are legitimately curious as to why the man was born blind. But they make some false assumptions, right? They assume it's a sin issue, a generational curse, a lack of faith. And Jesus says, yeah, it's none of those things. Tragedies happen. But in the midst of tragedies, there's opportunity for God's glory to be displayed, for his healing power to restore, for his redemptive touch to heal wounds in the soul that you thought would never be healed, and even for painful memories to lose their grip on you and for peace to come in the middle of tragic loss. And I can't tell you how many times I've met believers who in the middle of a very tragic loss go, but my heart, I grieve, I have sorrow, and yet my heart is strangely at peace, and I don't know why, but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, in, in our text today, he decides to demonstrate the power that he has to heal every disease and every tragedy, but he does some weird stuff, if you want to pick up in John chapter 9. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So I got a few questions. Right? <laughs> saying it. Like, why make mud with your spit and put it on his eyes? And why is the blind man, he's still blind, by the way, told, okay, now make your way to the pool of Siloam and wash. I mean, that would be hard since he's still blind and now he has mud over his eyes as well. It just doesn't seem necessary because we know that Jesus can heal with a touch. He can heal with a word. He can even heal from a distance. He did it with the centurion's servant. So what's the point of making mud with your spit, putting it on his eyes, telling a blind man to make your way to a pool? That even sounds dangerous, like fall in. You know, why is this happening? And I can't even, I, when I'm writing this sermon, I'm like, I can't move forward until I figure this one out because it's weird. Um, so what I want to do first is just look at two other places where Jesus uses spit in the process of a healing miracle. 
Maybe you didn't know that, but there's two other places where he uses spit. And I just want to read it and then kind of talk about that. So um, in another place, this is uh, in Mark 7, it says, Near Decapolis, some people brought Jesus a deaf man who could hardly talk. Jesus healed the man like this. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And I don't know, like, where he spit. Like, this is a little bit vague. Like, did he spit on? Like, I don't know exactly what that means. And then here's the second one. Later in the town of Bethsaida, Jesus healed a blind man. Again, the miracle was preceded by spitting. He spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. And I'm kind of thinking, like, if I had to choose to have... Listen, I don't think it's bad to say this. I know Jesus is the Son of God. I still don't know if I want him to spit on me. That, like... I would be a little bit, it'd be off-putting, right? Um, And I'm thinking, like, I'd rather have it put into mud and smeared on my eyes, I think, than the other dude who just had, like... So, I'm just saying it's weird. I just want to bring that out. And and I want to also say this. Jesus, who's fully empowered by the Holy Spirit and knowing only things in the will of the Father, does not need physical objects or things to work miracles. He doesn't need this. We know he doesn't need this because in many other cases, he just spoke and healing followed. Yet in three cases, there's spit used. Okay, there's a couple things that we can go with this. I think the best reason that he spit is this. It had to do with the beliefs of the contemporary culture of the day. Several Roman writers and Jewish writers referred to the healing power and properties of saliva. And since the people of that day actually had a really high view of spit, of saliva's healing properties, Jesus used spit to communicate his intention was to heal. And maybe he even did it to boost their faith a little bit. Don't worry, man, I got my spit. So if you didn't have, an, you know, like if you didn't have faith before, trust in the spit. We're going to get this thing done. Um, really, I mean, I think he's meeting them where they're at, right? Like he's meeting them in the culture of their day. It's like a sign that, hey, you're going to be healed. So Here's the other thing we got to think about. I don't know if Jesus is trying to initiate a confrontation with the Pharisees, but if he wasn't intentionally trying to anger the Pharisees, he certainly did a good job of doing every single thing that a Pharisee would hate. Like, you can't, you could, this is, if you want to write a handbook on how to annoy the Pharisees on the Sabbath, do this. Um, Because we're going to see this, that, okay, so what he does is he breaks, he breaks the Pharisees' rules of Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath, by making mud on the Sabbath, not allowed to do that, and by telling the man to go wash in the pool. Shouldn't do that. So as we're going to see, whether Jesus intentionally did all this to anger the Pharisees, I don't know, but it sure does make them angry. But before we get to that part of the story, I just had another question. And my second question is, again, related to something kind of weird that Jesus asked the man to do. Why does Jesus make the blind man go to the pool of Siloam? We're not sure how far away the man was from the pool, but I think any distance is far for a blind man. I mean, I know he's been blind from birth. He's probably figured out how to get around, but still seems like, why? And here's what I've realized. Very often, Jesus requires people to participate in the miraculous. They don't get to be passive bystanders. As an example, just look at some of the miracles in John's gospel alone. Think about the water into wine. People have to fill these jars with water, and then in faith, they need to serve that water, which turns to wine. And I can imagine the servants who just had filled the jugs with water, filling them again with water and going, I can't believe I'm going to go serve the master of the banquet water. And as they pour it, it turns into wine, is the way I'm thinking of it. Jesus invites them to participate in the miracle. Think of the feeding of the the 5,000. 
A boy brings this tiny little basket of food in faith going, here, Jesus, would this be enough? And there's 5,000 people and the disciples are like, oh, you silly boy. And Jesus goes, yeah, absolutely, that's enough. And then in faith, the disciples have to take that tiny little basket and start distributing it. I would be hesitant to do this because I'm going to look like an idiot. I got this little tiny basket and there's a huge crowd of people and I'm like, okay, dig in, right? But they are required to step out in faith to do this. The man who was paralyzed and couldn't walk, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. The man has to stand up. So I think that there's this fatalistic mentality that says God will do whatever he wants with me or without me. Kind of a God wills it. But as you read scripture, you actually find that isn't true. That God invites us to join him in a divine partnership. And you read the Bible and you realize that God actually likes working with us. Think about people like Gideon or Moses. He didn't need to use Gideon. He could have just killed all those enemies. He didn't necessarily need Moses. He could have just appeared in a in a pillar of flame and said, okay, people, I am your God, come with me. I think of the walls of Jericho, right? And I'm like, God could have said, hey, don't worry about that city there, guys, watch this. Boom, bring the walls down. But instead he's like, okay, you got to march around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, you got to do it seven times and you got to blow these trumpets and then the walls will come down. He asks us to participate with him. He doesn't need us but he invites us to participate in what he's doing. But we have to be willing to obey and to take that little step of faith and obey what God is calling us to do. And so I kind of believe that if this man had not gone to the pool of Siloam, the healing wouldn't have happened. If the man who was paralyzed had not stood, his legs wouldn't have strengthened. If the servants had refused to pour the water, it wouldn't have turned into wine. And so the first, and so I think that there's just something to take away from this. And it's it's not that you, um, you need to like, Build your faith up because Jesus says, faith the size of a mustard seed is good enough. Or there's a man who comes running to him and says, you know, Lord, heal my boy. Um, I believe, uh, help my unbelief. So it's not like we're trying to muster up faith. It's just saying, can you take the step of faith to just say, God, can you do? And so often that's, that's what prevents people is they're just unwilling to even ask God. They go, he wouldn't do that. Or if he wanted to do that, he would do it. But in James, it says, you know, if anyone is sick, they should ask for prayer for healing from the elders. And Jesus sometimes asks people, do you want to be made well? And so there's just this little invitation to step, just a little step, and just say, God, I I think you might. I think you could, and I'm going to ask. So that's that's one takeaway. But now we're going to kind of flip the story a little bit, because the first half of the story is just a wonderful recounting of a miracle. But because Jesus performs it on the Sabbath and he makes mud with, and makes saliva and, and you know the religious leaders are furious about this. So the story now turns from a miracle to an interrogation. So the people of this community see the blind man healed. Some of them are amazed by it and others can't even believe it. So they say, well, it can't be him. It's just a guy that looks like him, which is a silly thing to say, but that's how people get when they see things they can't understand. But because the healing occurred on the Sabbath, the people are, you know, good, diligent people. They take him to the Pharisees. He was healed on the Sabbath. we got to get him into the Pharisees, see what they think about it. So it says this in uh, verse 13 of John chapter 9. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on his eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. The weird thing about miracles, especially healing miracles, is they can be a dividing point for people. 
We can see it in the people who know the man, right? Some are like, hey, it's him, and others are like, no, it can't be that guy. He was blind. There's no way blind people start to see. And the Pharisees, we see, are not really interested in a man born blind now seeing. Some of them are. Some say, hey, this is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, but it seems like the majority don't really care about a man's sight being restored because they're upset that their rules got broken. And as we progress through the interrogation that the Pharisees put this man through, here's what I think we see. And I'm not going to read every single part of this. You can read it on your own. We're going to hit the the highlights. But here's what we see through this interrogation. The more your environment consists of man-made religion, the more resistant people will be to God's working and God's power. Because man-made religion is about control. But when God breaks through and does what only God can do, it wrecks the illusion of control and the religious mindset cannot deal with it. Man-made religious systems are almost always opposed to displays of God's true power because it's out of their control, and deep down, people are afraid that God's going to change things too much. Think if you were a religious leader in Jesus' day, and Jesus starts doing this stuff, and you're like, the whole thing that we've built our entire identity on is being shaken to its very foundation. Who is this man to think he can do that to us? And so I think that many times people will pay lip service to God's power, but they really really don't expect it, and they really don't want it. It's easy to go to church and do the familiar. It's not easy to listen to what God is saying, step out in faith and do it. And this is certainly the Pharisees' fear. They see Jesus breaking all the rules, and they they can't really handle the loss of power and control. A man born blind can see. Like, what an incredible miracle. But they really don't care about the miracle because the rules were broken. And, And it's deeper than that. It's not just that they're like these weird, like, rule followers. The deeper issue is they're going, the whole system that we've built is being shaken. And so here's the conversation the Pharisees have after their first round. So they've already questioned him once. We're coming into the second round of questioning of the man. Pick it up in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking about Jesus, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And I love that they were divided. I love that some of the Pharisees were like, come on, guys. Do you see this miracle? He's got to be the Messiah. And still others said, well, no, he broke the Sabbath. Not meaning God's law of Sabbath, but their law of Sabbath. But they come to this conclusion. Jesus is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath law they created. Despite his miracles, despite his authoritative and amazing teaching, despite setting people free from the demonic, the religious leaders mostly just want Jesus to follow their rules. Just play by the system. Be one of us. You can still do all that, just like, be like us. And if he doesn't become like them, they conclude, well, then he must not be of God. However, as Jesus constantly shows us, and as I said, God will do whatever God wants to do. And he doesn't need to obey our human-made doctrinal statements or our tightly controlled religion. When we surrender fully to Jesus, obey him, and walk in step with the Spirit, God will do whatever he wants to do. And he's not going to be confined. And when you witness firsthand God's power and glory at work in the lives, in your life or in the lives of the people around you, you can't deny it. And that actually gives you new spiritual insight. I remember one time... Uh, we were kind of walking into Holy Spirit renewal stuff, and, and uh, our associate pastor's mom was like, oh, I don't know about this, guys. I don't know. This sounds a little, I don't know. And then she went to a Holy Spirit encounter, and um, someone prayed for her, and the heaviness of God fell upon her, and she fell out on the floor, which I'm not comfortable with. I don't like, I, I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. But listen, <laughs> she was skeptical of God's power and God's goodness. And when she 
got back up, she said, nobody pushed me, no, like nobody touched her. She just went down and somebody prayed and she said, the spirit of God filled me. I know the spirit of God filled me. And so I'm not gonna put boundaries on what God can do or can't do. Even if I'm not comfortable with it, and I'm often not comfortable with it. I'm like a cynical, skeptical, logical dude. I'm often, I'm like, I don't know about this. Now, I'll caveat this by saying, I believe in discerning and testing everything that happens. I don't just let anything happen. I'm, I'm going, hey, what is the spirit at work here? If it's not of the Holy Spirit, we don't want it. But anyways, when you allow God to do what he wants to do, you gain new spiritual insight. And so this man born blind, healed by Jesus, gained both physical sight and spiritual insight. The Pharisees keep pestering this poor man with another round of questioning, and the man just refuses to reject the healing that has happened to him. He refuses to turn his back on Jesus. And the consequences of refusing to agree with the Pharisees that Jesus is a sinner means he's going to be kicked out of the synagogue, which is a big deal. He's not going to be allowed to come and worship with all of the people. He's going to be excluded from the fellowship, seen as an unclean sinner, but he's not going to turn his back on Jesus. So the Pharisees aren't getting anywhere with this man, and if you keep following in the story, they haul his parents in. And his parents are intimidated by the Pharisees. They know that to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah right now is going to get them thrown out of the synagogue like their son, so they don't really support their son or Jesus. They just say to the Pharisees, well, yeah, that's our son. You can ask him about it. He was blind, now he sees. I don't know. Ask him what happened. We see as this interrogation continues that the Pharisees are so set on their doctrine, so set on their religion, that despite all the evidence they have that Jesus is the Messiah, they refuse to let evidence guide their thinking. And their thinking goes like this. He breaks the Sabbath law recreated. Only sinners break our laws. Therefore, he must be a sinner, and we know sinners can't do miracles. That's the thought process that they're stuck on. So they interrogate the man again. And he just refuses to play the Pharisees' game and say Jesus is a sinner. He just says what he knows, coming into verse 24. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. What else can I say? Now when Jesus finds out about the interrogation, he comes and he finds the man. Coming in in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. You've now seen him, right? You see? Ah, that's pretty cool. You've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Every encounter with Jesus is a truth moment in which a person's response to Jesus revealed the heart's posture towards Jesus, the receptivity towards Jesus. And this point isn't lost on the Pharisees. Are you saying we're blind? They absolutely actually assume when they ask this question that Jesus can't say they're blind because they're the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. They can't be blind. So they fully expect, no matter what disagreement they have with Jesus, that Jesus will affirm them. But Jesus simply says, hey, you claim to see spiritual truth, but you're blind to it. And for this reason, you're guilty because you're blind, but you claim you see. So here's the thing. It's not wrong to be spiritually blind. I love talking to people who have no idea about spiritual things. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's not wrong to be spiritually blind. Jesus can help you see. 
And when you realize you're blind, you can search for help and the Savior will find you. But it's wrong to be blind and claim you're not. It's wrong to be blind and lead others into darkness with you, as some of these religious teachers did. So let me pause for a moment as we come to the the end of our sermon here. We often like to think of ourselves as different from the religious teachers of Jesus' day. But every time I read about the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, I'm reminded of this. The church and Christians today fill the same role that the Pharisees and teachers of the law did in their time. So instead of assuming automatically that we are not like the Pharisees, that we are not like these religious leaders, we should first recognize that we are the religious leaders of our day. And secondly, we should then ask, what about me or my beliefs would Jesus challenge me on? Or, second question, what might Jesus do that would make me think he was a sinner like the Pharisees did? Is there something Jesus might do or say, people that he might interact with, that would make us question whether he was really righteous? In this story, I think we actually need to see if we have the same attitude as the religious leaders. That attitude of, we're not the blind ones, we're the ones who see clearly. And the question is, do we really see as clearly as we think we do? I think Kent Hughes has a good quote for this. He says, the self-satisfied attitude of, we see, is deadly. We comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin of the world, to see the moral problems of the world. We see that Jesus is the answer. We focus on what we think we see, but never really see into our own hearts. It is so easy to focus on our piety or our changes in our behavior, but while we congratulate ourselves, we allow evil to spread into our souls. So Hughes is saying we can become so fixated on looking at the external measures of religion and we can get so fixated at looking at everyone else's problems, which makes us feel superior, that we neglect to be self-aware of what's really going on. Like the Pharisees, we can actually be blind to our true heart condition if we don't stop and ask the Lord, search me, O God, point out any offensive way in me. And so often we look at the response of the Pharisees to Jesus and we think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. But I think the real question is, are we kind of like that? Are we the religious gatekeepers of our day? Are there people that God wants in our midst that we don't want? Are there things God wants to do, but we just don't want him to do it? So let Jesus tell you what needs to change. Don't assume you've arrived simply because you know all the right answers to your, your church's statement of faith or, you know, you feel more moral than the world around you. Let Jesus search you and know you. And admit that without Jesus, you are blind. Only in Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit can you really see with spiritual insight. And people with spiritual sight will readily recognize their own blindness and their need for a Savior, Teacher, and Lord. I'm going to call the worship team up. And uh, just as we close here, there's a Charles Spurgeon quote that I thought fit this little part of the sermon. He said, It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. And so for those of us who follow Jesus for a lot of years, my question for us today is this. Are we humble enough to admit that we don't know everything? That Jesus can and does do things that we have not yet seen, that we haven't expected for or looked for? Secondly, are we willing to partner in whatever Jesus is leading us to, even if it looks risky? As Jessica Sampson said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Or it requires a step of faith. Are we willing to go there? For those of you who might be here who are not yet following Jesus, can I tell you this, that Jesus longs to make you see, 
to see with spiritual eyes, to set you free from guilt and sin and shame, to set you free from being ruled by your desires and your thoughts. And if you want to let Jesus be your savior and the ruler of your life, you can come and speak to me today or you can send me an email. But if you feel that prompting in your heart, don't wait. And finally, I want to close with this. Are any of you sick? Because we've just seen the power of Jesus to heal. We're a Christian Missionary Alliance Church. We believe in the healing provision for the believer today. And so if, if we want to follow the biblical instruction in the book of James, if any of you are sick, come for healing. We'll pray for you. And again, we're going to pray in faith that you'll be healed, but we're also praying that Jesus will meet you in that place that you'll have an encounter with Jesus that will strengthen your faith and strengthen your conviction and, and just let the arms of Jesus wrap you in a hug. And so we're going to worship together. And once we're done worshiping, we'll do our congregational response. And if you want to come forward, if you want prayer for anything, but if you want prayer for healing specifically, we'd love to pray with you today for healing. Let's worship together.